Welcome to Connector Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. This week's guest, Matt Allen, knows that startups are hard. He knows this because he's founded four tech startups, invested in more than 26 startups, and advised countless others over the past 20 years. A couple of years ago, leading VC firm Airtree recognised Matt and his wife April as some of the best angel investors in Australia, noting that by 2020, they'd invested about $530,000 across 26 companies, with 58% of that active portfolio having a female founder. And that notwithstanding that three of those investments had gone to zero, the remainder had generated $2.6 million in cash returns and $7.7 million in equity value at each company's most recent valuation. That means that by 2020, Matt and April Allen were up 19 times so far. These days, Matt is the CEO of Tractor Ventures, Australia's first revenue-based investment fund. Matt's goal is not just to make money. In fact, it's actually to connect dots and facilitate the magic that happens when great people work together. Hi, Matt. It's fabulous to see you. How are you going? Good morning, Catherine. I'm great, thanks. It feels like you're at the absolute centre of the Victorian ecosystem as it relates to early stage investing, but you haven't always lived in Victoria. What was your journey to uh, where you are now? Yeah, so we came to Victoria in 2014. Um, I moved down here to open up the Melbourne office of my recruiting company that I was a partner of. Uh, so I was uh, down here building out the software engineering teams for companies like realestate.com.au, Redbubble, REA, um, uh, and REA, of course, and Envato. Um, but prior to that, we actually lived in the Southern Highlands in New South Wales and Barrow. Prior to that, we lived on a farm in the Southern Tablelands near Goulburn. And prior to that, born and bred in Sydney. April and I both grew up in Sydney and we sort of left there in 2005, 2006 when we had our first kid, Fraser. And you went to Helston Ag? I did, yes. I went to an agricultural high school, um, which was a selective high school. I was a, a day student, not a boarder. And I actually lived in the suburb next door. So I caught a train one stop to go to, um, to the agricultural high school, which was funny. I didn't have any connection to the land or anything until I went there. And then I had a bunch of mates that lived on farms and I'd go and spend the weekend out with them. And, you know, eventually ended up living on 75 acres of my own, which turns out I'm not a farmer. Like, let's be honest, I don't even like outside very much a lot of the time. But um, it was a good way to uh, have a tree change at the end of my first startup and go and try some different things. And where did the love of technology come from? I think I read somewhere that you started coding sort of when you were still at high school, but Tell us a bit about, you know, how you came to be a sort of hands-on technology person. 
I mean, my first computers back way back in the day. Um, and, you know, I begged my parents for a computer, which they couldn't afford, but got me. And I'm sure they had no idea about the, the implications of, of what that decision would do for me in the long run. And I remember that um, back in the day, games were not exactly a, a thrilling thing. One thing that mum said to me was like, you can have as much computer time as long as you're not playing games. So I went, well, I like the computer. So I would you know, I used to play piano, so take sheet music and like translate it into MIDI files. And then the games weren't as much fun, but they were more accessible. Like you could, a lot of these games, you could view source and go modify things. And, you know, the curiosity to change stuff and break stuff and then fix it, figure out why it broke and, and fix it again was, was interesting to me. When I was in high school in the mid 90s um, in New South Wales, the very first time they ran three unit computers, which was like the, the high level computers, was when I happened to be in year 11. So I was the very first class ever to do 300 computers in New South Wales. And I was the only person in my school to do it, which meant I spent a lot of time in the library on the internet, learning about the web and learning about stuff. I think I had to submit something I don't really remember. It was just basically me on the internet for two years, which was in 94, 95, was not a bad thing. It was when web browsers became a thing. And I guess being there at the beginning, I like being at the beginning, I like being early, I like being first. And I think just sort of pioneering that stuff has been something that I've done ever since. Yeah, and that's so interesting, that capacity at an early age to chart your own course. Did that come from something growing up that you sort of built that confidence to do something that other people weren't doing? I don't think so. Um, I came from like the least entrepreneurial family on earth. So like everybody was, did the thing that they did, you know, dad worked at the waterboard, you know, his whole career, he, you know, had one job his whole career for 40 and a half years. There's no entrepreneurialism in my family at all. So I don't know, I was inspired by a few family friends that were slightly more techie and slightly more sort of in leadership roles in their careers. I don't know, was it was it being the opposite of what I was surrounded by? Or was it looking for something that was completely different? Maybe. I don't know. That's that's maybe what we could put it down to. And so you left school and did you step straight into entrepreneurship straight from there? Not really. Via a little bit of um, you know, hospo, spent my time in Maccas and Pizza Hut, ran a Pizza Hut for a while. But quickly went into um, customer support, actually, at OneNet and OneTel, which, if you remember, was back in the day, was the telco of the, the kids of the, the Packer family. That was fun. That was all 20-year-olds. The whole thing was run by basically teenagers, and it was a bit of a shit show. But it was fun. Got customer support, you know, turned into a team leader, then got into my ability to do stuff with web, sort of helped customers build their websites and stuff. And uh, in parallel with that, I started a hosting company. Hosting was a, a difficult thing back then. Finding somewhere to put your website was difficult. So my mate and I um, bought a couple of servers and went down to an ISP and plugged them into their network. And we had a couple of machines running there for a couple of years and hosted a bunch of websites for the music industry. And I guess just learning by doing. I'm always a learning by doing person. So I'm self-taught everything I do. I didn't go to university. And I think the challenge that everyone has, and, and even kids nowadays, is that if you want to be on the cutting edge of this stuff and being where things are being built for the first time, the education system is not good at that. Like they're not good at being right at the edge of new things. They kind of struggle. Like, you know, you go, I, I did do one semester of uni at Wollongong Uni and sort of did business computers and they were teaching me stuff like this is how to use a mouse i'm like you're kidding me this is this is a long time ago from what i what i at. so I, I i left after a semester and and at that point decided to just go jump in the industry you said that you um had a tree change after your first startup 
was that a reflection of the fact that it was a really demanding experience being a first-time founder? Yeah, I was completely burnt out. Like I hit a wall really hard. Me and my co-founder sold it to some new directors that came in and sort of guys that were you know, more sales orientated and sort of basically bought the business office. I managed to pay back a, a whole heap of money that I'd borrowed from my co-founder's family, actually, to, to sort of put into the business. And I hit a wall really, really hard. I was sort of on the couch and broken. And that was just after our first son has been born. About He was about six months old at that stage. And we just needed to do a bit of a reset and you know we were looking around at sydney property prices and it's hilarious to think back in 2005 going this place is very expensive because it'll cost half a million bucks um you know nowadays that place is probably worth two and just going how do we optimize for space and low costs so we actually bought a block of land and then built a house on top of a hill and our neighbors are all sheep farmers and they thought we were crazy for building a house on top of the hill because we get blown away but we had a nice view and they looked at the side of the hill it was just one of those things where I was like I didn't want to be encumbered by a large mortgage you know I wanted some optionality on my ability to generate revenue and not have to spend it all on on, on housing and it worked well for, for quite a while I mean the thing that fascinates me about that is that notwithstanding that you hit the wall you're broken you've obviously got an enormous capacity for resilience because you've gone on to be a founder three more times since then. Yeah. Do you think there's a bit of tolerance to pain that increases over time or what's, you know, the, the capacity to to know how hard it is and do it again? Yes, I think the tolerance to start again is interesting and, and knowing, you know, whether you're a sort of zero to one person or one to 10 or a 10 to 100 person, which is hard to know early on. I was still in my 20s. You know, I'd done this thing. My business partner had pinged me out of the blue, sent me an email and said, I've got this idea, can you build it? And I was a techie, so I'm like, yeah, I can build anything. So I spent, you know, five years building a thing I, I knew nothing about originally, but being the technologist and the problem solver, that was what I did. And I think, you know, the thing that has happened over time is that, like the mean time between me going, this is not for me and moving on is shortening over time. So it took me to my 40s to realize that, what I actually don't like to do and optimize to not have, have any of it at all. Um, you know, and over the career, it sort of started lessening over time. So we can sort of make sure that I'm not spending too much time doing stuff that doesn't float my boat because it's not sustainable, right? Like we talk about sustainability. We need to exist in that place where sort of that zone of genius that people talk about. A lot of people get to their zone of excellence, which is the things that they're really good at, but they don't really love anymore. And I think, the time it takes to enter the zone of excellence is is really is different for some people. Some people spending spend their entire career in the zone of genius, not feeling like they they need to go out and find something new to do. But I sort of move through them pretty quickly. I sort of get to the point where I'm like, I know enough, I've achieved enough, I've had enough, whatever definition of success at the time is, and then like what's next? And for forty years, I was I was tormented by that. I actually felt like. I was failing because I was moving quickly through these things and not sticking around long enough to, you know, extract enormous amounts of value out of it. And I think what I've done now with, with Tractor Ventures, my current business that I'm the CEO and co-founder of, is the first time in my career is that I've built the infrastructure around me to actually capture the value I've created behind me for me rather than giving it to someone else and moving on. So how did you make the leap from being a founder yourself to being an investor? I think originally I just decided that I wanted to be an investor. You know, I spent a lot of time on Twitter and I was following along with some VCs and, and it seemed to me that 
having been a founder and having had some investors who were great people, but they were just business people that were, you know, ahead of me, had capital, had a little bit of time. Having been through it, a lot of the time, it just felt like I could have a conversation with a founder that was important to them or at least relevant to some degree. And there was some experience in there that I could maybe point out and talk about all the dumb stuff that I did in work. And I guess came into a little bit of capital with making some some bets on some publicly listed stock zero in particular, allowed me to have a little bit of excess capital, which allowed me to make a few bets and you know have a conversation with founders and, and help them out when they were raising capital. And having been a founder, which was damn hard and still damn hard, I'm like, maybe an investor is is not as hard as being a founder. You know, there's someone else doing the hard work and I can just, I can help them by providing capital a little bit of advice and, and maybe capture some of that upside when other people are doing great stuff. Because, you know, as I identified, me creating a lot of value and then walking away from it was not good for me a lot of the time. So maybe I could find someone that's going to actually create it and run with it and help them along the way and maybe capture a little bit of that upside without all of the work that you know you, you have to do as a founder. It feels like you've been really good at it. So I think I saw some figures that by the middle of 2020, your portfolio of startups was you know up 19 times. Do you think that's happened by design or you know by coincidence? Like you know how much of that skill, how much of that's luck, how much is that because you're a great bloke and people who like you share good deals with you? Most of it's luck, to be honest, but. I think it was Chris Sacker I said on Twitter the other day, it's like, it was lucky, but it wasn't an accident, right? So, you know, lucky is like finding money on the ground, but an accident is my investments are not accidents. They're hanging out with people that are doing stuff that I find interesting. It's usually my ability, um, initially, as at least when I wasn't just getting started, was to go, hey, I would like to invest in your company, like being very proactive about it, right? Because a lot of people have not unhappy, but you know, they don't like asking for this stuff, right? If someone came to you and said, I like what you're doing, I would like to invest in your company, can I help? As a founder, as an entrepreneur, like that's a like, wow, okay, cool. Well, somebody believes in me or somebody can see something that I either have explained to them or I don't see and they see it. So initially it was very proactive. I remember my first three deals were like me like hustling hard to go and mates were doing stuff. I'm like, can I just give you some money? Like, I don't even know what investing is, but I've got a little bit of money. Can I, can I do it, please? And then I guess the tables turn after a little while. And I'm not shy of talking about the companies I invest in because that's also part of what I think we do as early investors is we become a bit of cheerleaders and having a platform to be able to, you know, in my mind, it's, it's just helping the founders out. It's just getting their message out there. It's, it's repetition. It's all the things that we do as investors that, and it's a de-risking method. Like, you know, there's a de-risking method here, which is if I can help these founders achieve incrementally achieve something that they couldn't above and beyond the capital I put in, then that's good for everybody, right? Including me. So it's not entirely altruistic that I'm, you know, investing in these these businesses. I want to see them succeed and they will succeed, but it's also so we can all succeed at the same time. So I think being open and transparent and honest about this stuff and my journey and, and being telling people, you know, that I've hit the wall several times and I've had tough things happen. You know, I've had co-founder bust-ups and, you know, I've, I've left companies, all kinds of stuff, which was really important for me to learn what I want and what I don't want and where I'm good and what I'm where I'm not good. And, and eventually, 40 years down the track, I think I'm pretty good at identifying where I begin and where I end. And, and that's really important for both an investor and, and being a founder again. I've always been impressed by that proactivity in terms of you saying that you sort of want to make yourself redundant in the process, that 
if you're an early stage investor, you'll have a shelf life and then you want a company to grow to the point where your skills are no longer relevant because it's outgrown you. Have you needed to work towards having that level of personal insight and humility or does that just come naturally? Oh, no, I've had to work. I mean, like to think that I can take something all the way to the end is like I've never done it before. And arguably talking about early about the stuff about where I sort of begin and end is I get bored doing the same stuff all the time. So I really like helping founders get to the point where they've got enough, created enough value to hand the baton on to the next person and then go back to being their mate. Like quite often the founders, initially I'm an advisor and investor and then I'm the one that's just happy to take them to the pub. Um, because they've got the people around them who are riding them. You know, like once people have put way more capital in than I have, especially once they've got capital from people who have taken it from other people, everybody's interests are very pointy around what success looks like. And that's hard for founders. Having been that guy before, I'm I'm like, cool, well, nothing I can do is going to help you achieve stuff and deliver stuff above and beyond what your board is asking you to do. So how about we just go to the pub and catch up and move to sort of casual support rather than structured support because they don't need yet another person with yet another monthly call to feel like they're being checked in on because that's not who I am. I think you've talked publicly that you've had at least three investments go to zero. When you're in that situation where a company's not working, how much do you feel as an investor or a board member it's your responsibility to step in and really try to help solve some of the problems or do you more have a philosophy of just letting the train crash happen because that's the way it really needs to be? I mean, I guess it depends. I mean, I've had one go to zero lately where the founder, again, just hit a wall, first-time founder. She raised a bunch of money off some really significant investors, was not able to turn the velocity into any kind of revenue, kind of hit a wall, and that was the end of that. You know, my support is for the person all the time. Again, being an angel investor, putting in small amounts of money, the money is without sounding like a dick, is inconsequential. A 10 or 20 grand check in the scheme of across 10 years, you know, like, you know, in, in that thing is, it's gone. Like, I've, you give it back to me today, I'm like, okay, great, I'll go find another one. But it's it's not life-changing for me. It's life-changing for them, negatively, you know, like, it shouldn't be. It'll be positive in the long run, but it's hurtful for them. Like, it's really painful for them in the meantime. So, you know, I'm just like, it'll be okay. Like, don't worry about it. I have the same thing. You know, I've had to walk away from stuff. I've had to shut companies down you live. They're worried about what we think. We being investors, I'm sitting there going, don't worry about it. Like, this is the aim of the game. Like, the aim of the game is not for you to fail. The aim of the game is to give you capital to try as hard as you can. And I think you tried really hard. Like, none of these people, none of the things that have gone to zero is because the founders just, you know, became ambivalent and didn't care. They care too much about the wrong stuff a lot of the time and burn themselves out and to sort of turn it into a sustainable business or a growing business, which it's hard to help people navigate that stuff when they want to do things a certain way. I reckon as investors, we talk a good game about wanting to back founders who've had the experience of failure, but do we really actually put our money where our mouth is and back people who have burnt investors' money in the past? Well, I think in Australia, we're pretty early on in our cycle still. So there's not many people that have raised a ton of money, had a good swing at it, hadn't have it work reset their lives and come around again. Well, I'm an example of it. You know, people are backing me and I've, I haven't lost anyone's money, but I've certainly not returned great returns to people. I, I guess in Australia, um, 
I, I think the cycle's pretty early. I haven't seen a lot of evidence. That said, I mean, I've backed lots of second-time founders, but not because I was in it the first time, just because they've done stuff before. So I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer for that. I, I think the pool of people who are in that actual thing that have actually raised external capital, it hasn't worked out, and then they've started all over again. I've seen a lot of people who have raised external capital you know, move things around, change direction, sort of had a reset and gone again. I mean, I've been involved in a few of those things where the first thing was way different to the thing that eventuates, which I think is probably more common than gone to zero, you know, reset, go again. You mentioned earlier that the first early stage investors you had in your company were business people that didn't have any particular venture experience. What are the sort of signals that a founder might look to to get a sense of whether this is a person who really can add value as an investor as compared to someone who's just, you know, putting a check in and maybe might not be giving them good advice. I think founders need to differentiate the difference between capital and advice. And usually they would assume that they come hand in hand and they don't always. There's sort of three kinds of money you can get. We can get smart money, which is money and people that have specific relevant advice and capacity to help you. So that's smart money. You can get dumb money where people write you a check and you never hear from them again. And the next time they'll hear from you is when you're raising more money or when you're exiting. And the worst kind is the middle, which is annoying money. And and I think uh, what you're alluding to here is kind of annoying money. So if you take money off people who haven't done this before um, are not experienced and they don't understand that they're investing in a illiquid, long-term, highly risky asset, and they're calling up the founder and asking how they're going, and they're not really asking how they're going. What they're actually asking is like, when am I going to get my money back and how much am I going to get? That is super annoying. So, you know, the words that I, I quite often say, like if the person, if you're sitting there pitching at an angel investor and they're trying to make a decision between, you know, a new Jaguar, a new set of golf clubs or your investment, like do not take their money and run away because they're going to be calling you going like, you know, I didn't buy my new Jaguar and the wife really wanted it. It's 12 months on and I, it's, it's time again. Like, can I have my money back, please? And the amount of founders who are wasting time with shareholders that have just basically been dicks because they may have lost faith. They may have, for whatever reason, their circumstances have changed and they've decided that that 50 grand they gave you or 100 grand they gave you is, is now important to them and they need it back. And there's a founder going, well, I've spent it all on stuff, right? You can't have it back. The volume of those people around is still really high. Everyone wants to be an angel investor. Everyone can tell their friends. But the behavior that goes along with it, I think, is a learned behavior. And if you're not part of things like scale and other groups where the behavior is kind of expected and almost taught, you know, really clear that this capital is not going to come back to you in any way, shape or form in any time soon, that's, I think, a real risk for founders. One of the things there that's really interesting to me is that you are an experienced founder, you're an experienced and high achieving investor, but you choose to invest in groups as well as doing your own investing. So you're a member of Scale, you're a member of Flying Fox. Why is investing with other people important to you? Look, I think it's also a function of my stage of life and my ability to actually have one-on-one conversations with founders. You know, being back in the founder chair myself and CEO of Tractor Ventures, my time is is pretty limited and, and it's funny, I talk about, especially with some of my other mates that I angel invest with, and we have a syndicate we're about to launch next year as well, which like it's irrational. Like every single one of us, and there's five of us in this thing, have either CEOs or founders of 
some of them are billion dollar companies, right? However, we've got this thing on the side that we do investments with together and whatever. It's like, hang on a minute. And, you know, here I'm a tractor. Tractor's doing very well. I'm a, you know, significant shareholder. I'm the founder. I'm the CEO. You know, my net worth in relation to this thing in any rational world, it's like, don't do a single thing, point it all at that thing, because the more effort you put into that thing, the likelihood of, of having this personal outcome is really high. Same as with my other people. Yet here we are investing in early stage companies and writing $10,000 checks. It's irrational. So um, to answer your question, uh, my ability to have one-on-one conversations with founders nowadays is limited. So the way that I scale my ability to find these founders is to the kind of trust I would normally, you know, not time and effort to earn trust with a founder. I now do it with people like, you know, yourselves at scale and Kylie at Flying Fox and the 1013 crew up in Queensland for them to do the work to go out and find the founders and just present me options. There's kind of levels of abstraction when it comes to investing. You can either be the conversation with the founder and do all the work yourself. You know, so that's making a decision about a founder in their company. You can be a part of a syndicate like Scale and so forth where you're still making a decision as to whether or not you make that decision, but the the diligence and the the investment memo has been built for you. So you've trusted people to do the heavy lifting. And then you can be an LP in a fund, of course, where it's like all you're doing is making capital calls rather than decisions. And it's, a, it's about how comfortable you are making decisions now, right? Do I make one decision and give it to a fund? Do I make decisions on diligence or do I make decisions on like founders? To, do I make the decision to do the diligence? Do I make the decision to back the diligence or do I make the decision to back a manager? They're kind of the three levels I run. And I run at all three still. Like, to be clear, I'm still doing direct investments, investments via syndicates plus LPs in several funds. One of the things I love about you is the relationship that you and your wife, April, have. It feels like you really are a genuine team. How have you guys navigated that in terms of, in general, any marriage advice you'd like to give, but um, more specifically, you know, how you've <laughs> leveraged the success of your relationship as it relates to investments? Yeah, look, I think the first five years was probably just me doing a lot of the heavy lifting and talking to founders. And she was, you know, to be clear, she was also running the family and, and, and had her own consultancy. So she was like, off you go. And it was always I'm the one that has a sensitivity to our financial state at point in time, like how much how's cash flow looking, you know, things like that. So she always knew that I'd never deploy capital that was going to effectively affect our ability to raise the family and, you know, pay the mortgage and do all the usual stuff that we have to do. Over the last three or four years, um, she's become far more active. And I think it's a function of, again, function of kids growing up and not having to be you know, the family is kind of self-sustaining to its, to a degree now. We don't have to be super early stage parents. So sort of leaning in and then another level lately has been the last 12 months of Tractor. The first six months of Tractor, she was basically watching it go by and was on the board. And She does like governance compliance, so she's happy to keep me in control there. But in the last six months, she's really lent into the sort of co-founding role and has taken over, you know, responsibility or leadership, if you will, for the portfolio team. So all the internal facing stuff, which is a lot of knowledge management, the things that she does. As far as investing goes, she's also put three or four or maybe five together herself now, sticks to her knitting, sticks to the things that she knows, domains that she's comfortable with, problems that she understands, solutions that can solve problems. You know, I've got more of a bit of a wider mandate now. I back people, so I'm very much a relationship person. I get to know people. I like them. I trust them. And whatever they're doing, I can get my head around. Where she's like, I need to understand 
the solution, which is part of a problem that I understand. And then I'll go back and, and sort of make sure the founders all align up and then we'll get it through that way. So yeah, there's, we do do things differently. For me, as you know, I like supporting all people, including her. And it's just, I'm happy just for her to find a voice, like go and find something you give a shit about and put some time and effort into it and you'll get better. Angel investing is about reps. It's about doing it frequently enough. I, I've, I've said multiple times that, you know, if you haven't deployed capital for six months, you got to give your badge back. Like this is a thing that you have to get comfortable doing frequently because you can talk yourself out of every deal. And if you don't do it often enough, your pool of capital will get too big and then you'll have this big chunk of money and you'll be tempted to deploy it into one company and then you'll stress out too much and you'll become one of those annoying investors and it's all downhill from there. So slicing and dicing into smaller checks more frequently so that you're comfortable with the crap you have to understand and the risks you have to have and that, you know, you get the lingo, you know, you get dialed in and things change, like the the terms and all the what's acceptable change pretty quickly. So if you're benchmarking for something you did 12 months ago and you're going, oh, this one feels really expensive because 12 months ago the pricing was different or the expectations on founders, you know, vesting and all kinds of stuff change pretty frequently. So you look like a bit of a Muppet if you're 12 months out of the game and you're trying to apply the, the stuff from 12 months ago to now. Going back to that sort of, it seems like the habit of a lifetime of doing stuff that other people aren't doing or doing it first feels like Tractor is another data point in terms of looking at what exists in the early stage venture landscape in Australia and then doing something really quite different. Can you tell us a bit about Tractor and, and how it's different and why you felt like creating something different was important? So Tractor Ventures is not a venture fund. So we do revenue-based financing, our first product. So we do non-dilutive capital to founders. And our first product is revenue-based financing, which is looks more like a loan where they pay back via revenue share, top-line revenue share until they pay back the capital, fixed amount worth of um, interest, and they know exactly how much it's going to cost them. We just know how long it's going to take, depending on how fast they grow. The reason I think we're able to exist now is because Australia's cycle of where we are in the venture cycle is sort of heading towards the end of round one. We had a bunch of VCs back in the dot-com boom and they all basically fell apart and didn't return very much money. And then there was this lull until sort of Blackbird Fund 1 came out in 2012, 2013. In reality, we're not even a decade into our cycle yet, which means you know we haven't had heaps and heaps of exits where there isn't a heap of heap of new founder capital flowing through. And it means the, the ecosystem and the infrastructure, the other stuff is just new as well. But there has been a lot of venture-backed founders. There's a bunch of people that worked inside venture-backed companies. And there's a bunch of founders who are either building companies that are non-venture compatible or choosing not to take the VC route, which as we know, is all about raising capital growing really quickly, hitting a milestone, raising more capital, rinse and repeat until until there's some liquidity even at the end, which creates this sort of very tightly time-bound expectation on the founders. And that's because the people they take the capital from have taken capital from other people and the expectations are all sort of flow all the way up, all the way down the chain, up the chain, whichever way you want to look. And it creates this environment where founders are forced to hit these milestones. And if they don't, then life gets very, very difficult for them. So with RBF, um, you know, we're happy for founders to run a slower growing company. We're happy for them to run a profitable company. We're happy for them to do whatever they like, as long as they've got growth, as long as growth is a the thing they want to do, but it doesn't have to be the rocket ship growth. So we built Tractor Ventures on the analogy that VCs do the rockets and we do the tractors. 
Rockets are exciting, but they're expensive and they're prone to blowing up. And tractors are consistent and reliable. And, you know, the farmers really love them because they solve a real problem for them. And we believe that there's, there's actually an asset class within an asset class. So there's a subset of tech startups run by a group of founders who treat their companies more like sustainable, still ambitious, but more deliberate and able to sort of grow within their means. And that's not to say that they're, they're, they're not lifestyle businesses. None of our founders are running businesses that you call them a lifestyle business. It's still bloody hard work. But they're doing it to the beat of their own drum. They've got happy customers who continue to pay them. So you know, coming back to your question, I think the, the ecosystem is now full of people who are starting to go, wait, I've got this business that's growing well and I've got this revenue. I don't really want to necessarily sell 20% of my company right now and put itself into that state where if I don't hit my 18-month milestone, you know, I basically have to walk away from it or I'm going to have investors that are disappointed and no, that's not really what I want. So we put our team together and we've gone from the three founders, which is, you know, myself, April and Jody and Mum, and our, our chair, Darcy Norton, to 15 of us now. We've deployed, uh, we're over 20 portfolio companies as of the 25th of November. 2021 and we're scaling up fast so we've gone from a hypothesis this might be able to be done to whoops the amount of money we raised which was all from founders and family offices ourselves so no venture inside tractor to my god the demand is ridiculous we need to do more so we did a couple of a couple of capital raises this year and now we're standing up a, a securitization um, platform so we are now going full pro mode with a standalone debt facility with some significant lenders in there to allow us to scale up. And, you know, that'll be good for founders too. It allows our cost of capital to come down, which allows us to write more affordable loans, which allows us to help more founders, which allows us to do better work and around and around and around it goes. And is that in your zone of genius, being a CEO and setting up something new? Yeah, so like I've never done my own thing. I've always been the sidekick to the leader, you know, mostly because I was a technologist. I was just, I was happy to build anything. And then when I was in my recruiting company, it was sort of my business partner, Steve. It was his business for a year. And then I came in as a partner and I ran Melbourne. He ran Sydney. So this is the first time I've been the CEO and a leader. And let's be clear, like our team is full of leaders, but I just happen to be the CEO. I really enjoy this. So, you know, I say Tractor, I've only got three jobs. You know, my job is to make sure that the team is amazing and to make sure that everybody knows who we are and to make sure we don't run out of money. And like, I think I'm pretty good at those things. We've hired a bunch of people that I have had experience with in the past. There are some new people that we've sort of done some process with, but I'm not good at the stuff they're good at. The challenge we've seen a lot of CEOs is that they, they actually limit the growth of their business because they can't delegate. I feel a bit the other way sometimes, which is I can't do the stuff you guys do. Like I literally, I probably could if, I, if you, you've made me, but I don't want to. And the fact that I don't want to means I don't even, I'm happy to trust them. And, you know, we've got chief credit and risk officer. I'm like, the work you do, I look at it all and it's amazing, but my God, don't make me do it. Even Jody on the sales stuff now, like she and her team talk to the founders as they come into Tractor. Even I can't do that all day long because I've, I've got to raise, you know, tens of millions of dollars to make sure that we've, the team has got enough work to do. And, you know, who knew that sitting on Twitter and is actually part of my job, which is, um, is a little scary, but I, I think it is my zone of genius. And, you know, I'm good. I think I'm good at coming up with products that founders will be helpful for founders that are not venture. So we've got three or four other products in our back pocket that we're working on at the moment that will require a bunch of talking and conversations with the founders and me figuring out where the 
boundaries lie. And like, I do enjoy that. And if I'm really honest, I enjoy not having to get into the weeds of contract negotiation and talking about strike prices and warrants because I don't really do that level of detail in any of my investments. You know, I'm not a details guy. What sort of companies should come and talk to Tractor? Are you sort of agnostic on sector or what's your pitch for the sort of companies that should be talking to you? So we'd love to talk to founders who have at least 50 grand a month in revenue. So you have to have revenue flowing. It's not for super early companies, although most of our companies have hundreds of thousands, not millions yet, but it's getting up there of revenue flowing. So we <clears throat> use that, use the the growth of their business into our model to figure out how much we can advance them and, and then sort of all the mechanics flow after that. So founders who are ambitious, founders who are deliberate, founders who are running businesses that have at least that sort of cash flowing, who you know want to retain their optionality. We say that from this point on, you can just run a profitable business if you want. Grow it, run profitable, stay within your means, retain all control, ownership, whatever you've got. If you want to raise capital, we'll help you do that as well. We've got 70 amazing people, family officers and founders who have backed Tractor who are all there because they want access to our portfolio as it grows. So we have people who, and we've done it, we've done it once, we're about to do it three more times before the end of the year, where we actually put our tractor portfolios back into our shareholders who would then put equity in, not finance like we do. Or if they want to sell their company, we've got a couple of founders at the moment, they're like, cool, we've got this to a couple million bucks, but you know, we think it's time to move on and we'll help them do that as well. So you know, your business model of, profitable VC backed or, or sell it works for us, you know, like where that's fine. We're completely okay with that. So, you know, any founders who aren't sure that the VC path is for them. And I guess the other component of what we do is that although revenue-based financing itself, our product is non-dilutive, it doesn't take any equity. We don't take board seats. We don't do any of that sort of hard governance stuff. We do have a, an amazing set of our team plus our extended investors and we put together a program which allows founders to pull as much out of that as they want. And we'd love to buy, we'd love to have the option to buy one or 2% of their company over the next handful of years. That's sort of what we put together. So it's founders who want to grow a company. And a lot of these founders are just sort of head down, bum up, like they're kind of not reading TechCrunch every day and playing startup you know, games. They're actually just building amazing businesses. And, and a lot of the time, the challenge with that is, is that you don't have the support. You don't have the people around you who can help you hit that next sort of level. And I think that the, the risk a lot of these founders have is that if they go out to, for that sort of guidance and they go down to people who are on the VC track, whether they're angels or whether they're VCs, then the, the advice they're going to get is, well, raise a ton of money and go do all the things. And that's not for everybody. We don't say it's bad. You know, it's hypocritical for me to say VC is bad because I am one. We're just giving people the ability to choose the right path for them. And you can go from a tractor to a rocket. It's very hard to go from a rocket to a tractor. So we prefer to talk to those founders who are in that state where they could make the decision and we can help them navigate the next steps and, and do what's right for them. And if they want to go raise equity, I can introduce them to everyone, you know, <laughs> and I'm happy to do it for them. I'm actually agnostic as to how they run their businesses. I just wanted them to have a choice and, and, and make an informed decision. So what's your best advice to a founder who's thinking about raising capital? Just understand the promises that the people whose capital you're taking have made to other people. The promise that I make about my capital is to my family, right? This is hopefully going to create enough wealth for us to enjoy our lives in the future. If it's a syndicate, you know, that's a bunch of individuals that, you know, they're probably individuals who have made a similar thing as sort of like family discussion where 
if it doesn't work, you know, like the family might go, you're an idiot, but it's not the end of the world. As soon as you take money from someone who's taken money from someone else, they've got a business model attached to that, right? Nobody does this for free. Anyone who's managing other people's money has a business attached to it. So the founders really, really must understand how that business works because they're now buying into it and they're aligning business outcomes. The only reason a VC invests in your business is because they believe that your business is going to return their whole fund. So if they've got a $100 million fund, they give you 10 million bucks, they're going to want at least 100 million bucks out of that. They also will know that eight out of 10 of their companies will, will actually go to zero and not return anything. You're sitting there at this sort of, situation going now am i one of the two of ten that work or am i one of the eight of ten that doesn't you're like statistically i'm probably in that bucket and just understand that you know at amazon we used to talk about one-way doors and two-way doors like taking venture taking money from other people that's taking money from other people it's kind of a one-way door it's very hard to come back through it and reset everything and go sorry about that that was we tried didn't work i'm going to go back to the way i was and there's a few scale companies that have sort of had that crack and then come off the boil. And then it's very difficult to raise more money. So unless you've got a mindset where you can sort of put it into, you know, tractor mode, but you're probably going to have sad investors at that stage, especially if those investors have got other investors who are like, hey, what's going on with that one? And it's really sad because I've, you know, as a LP in funds, I get the, the nav, the, the net asset value of the portfolio and the ones that are zero, the GPs have written them to zero. They're like, it's not dead, but it's not worth anything to us. These poor founders are still doing their thing. They're still going through the daily motions trying to run this thing and their investors have basically written them off. Be prepared for that. Be prepared to go like the support won't be there unless I'm one of the two out of 10 that's really nailing it. And that's, you know, this is a generic statement and, and you know, a lot of the VCs in Australia are really good mates of mine and I really, really love them. It's their business model. It's not them personally going, I don't believe in you. It's their business model saying, hey, you've got to optimize for the ones that are winning. And kind of the way you do that is to not optimize for the other ones. And just to be clear, Tractor doesn't run that. We don't want to lose our money. We're happy to get our money back with a smaller return over a function of time, which means that the diligence we do is different. We're not asking you to sort of spend all this money to hypergrowth so we can raise more money to hypergrowth again. We're saying use this money wisely to do more things that you already do, just do the move faster. Use the money wisely and we'll help you do that. So to come back to your question, my advice to founders is just understand the requirements of your capital. And the cheapest and best capital, if you can get it, is customer revenue. You know, you continue to build a good product, they'll continue to pay you money and they don't expect much else. And whether you go fast or slow is really neither here nor there to them as long as you're providing enough value for them to give you their credit card every month be mindful of the expectations and the expectations have got time our rbf things are sort of two and a half years long an equity investor is there for the long haul it's probably going to be 10 years you really just need to be mindful of, of who you're attaching yourself to and who's on the other side of your capital and their expectations and their ability to actually help too last question what are you really excited and optimistic about besides tractor of course i think it's a massive opportunity in the, over the next coming years, as our ecosystem matures, to there's going to be a bunch of capital come into the system from exited founders and employees of big of the unicorns on the trains, despite the rockets. Like there's going to be a massive opportunity for a bunch of these people to sort of come back around and start helping founders again. So I think founders are going to have a bunch of choice. I think what's going to happen is initially there was like a VC fund, then a few VC funds, and then a few angels who had had some returns via something and. Like the, the amount of people that 
have capital and have the desire to help is going to go up really, really quickly. And choice can be a little daunting for founders. It's the same as if you go to a restaurant with a big menu, like like I've got paralysis here. I'm excited about founders having a choice as to where they get, get their capital from and choice on how they build their business. I'm excited by having, and I think we're going to see even more of businesses that haven't gone down the VC path who become really big and really impactful. So, you know, we all say you can't be what you can't see. You know, we know that like Atlassian did one secondary and hit, hit the NASDAQ in an IPO. You know, Envato is owned by five people. You know, they do a massive revenue share and they give a big bunch of their profit to their employees, but it's owned by five people, you know, never raised any capital. You don't have to take that path to be big and impactful. So I'm excited by a, a, the percentage of the pie of founders that have made big companies that have gone down non-traditional paths. So that, that's really what's, I think the next five years is going to be really exciting to see how that goes. Well, I can't be more grateful for you making time to share some of your experience and you're such a great role model. And, you know, partly there's the reason that there's beautiful bird song in the background is because you're on holidays with your family. And I think in terms of being successful, you know, having um, your eldest child choose to spend their, the week after they've finished their last high school exams doing VCE to spend it with you and the rest of the family speaks to the success that you've enjoyed, not only as an investor, but, you know, also as a parent and as a human being. So thank you. It's just brilliant. Oh, thanks, Catherine. That's, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.